Good morning. This week's uh, scripture reading is Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 22. Huh? 11 to 22. Well then, sorry about that. <laughs> Therefore, remember that formerly you who were Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death our hostility. He came and preached. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also the members, members of the household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as a chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and raised to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. May God bless the reading and hearing of his word. Stand and enter into worship. How's everybody today? Good to see everybody. Okay. Um, when you were little, littler than you are now, what did you want to be? What was your dream? What was it? An adult. An adult, okay. A priest, okay. Anybody want to be a fireman or a ballerina? No? President, okay. A what? An astronaut? Oh, an actor. Well, an astronaut's pretty cool, too. A mountain man? A mother. So we all have dreams of what we'd like to have been or 
become. Some of us have reached those dreams. Some of us have not. What is it that prevented some of us from reaching those dreams? Okay, so you had no idea what you wanted to do, so you couldn't reach it because there was something there preventing you from reaching it, right? Okay, well, it's not too late. <laughs> Ron, how come you didn't become president? Oh, poor life choices, okay. Did anybody want to do something but they couldn't do it because either they couldn't speak a language or they weren't good at math or they weren't in a family that had enough money for them to go to college, things like that, things that prevent us from doing the things, or those that wanted to, like I was raised to be a stay-at-home mom. Well, <laughs> that didn't happen. <laughs> it didn't happen at all. Um, I needed to work. And I need to work. That's part of who I am. But that kind of was a, a thing for me. I need to do stuff. I need to be busy. Sometimes too busy, but that's a problem. There are things that prevent us from doing the things that we dream of doing. Um, some of us are dreaming now of retirement, of good health, of grandchildren, or children, or a diploma, or whatever. But there are often obstacles in the way. When I was looking at the scripture for today, it talks about the wall that um, causes us to not be connected the way we need to be. And that made me think about God's dreams. What do you think God dreams about? His people coming back. His people caring for each other, loving each other. And I came across this really awesome book called God's Dream. It's by Archbishop Desmond Tutu and Douglas Char Charlton Abrams. And it's a really beautifully written book about God's dreams. And I'm just going to share a few pages of it with you. Um, but it says, do you know what God dreams about? If you close your eyes and look with your heart, I'm sure, dear child, that you'll find out. And that's what we need. We need to look with our heart. God dreams about people sharing, about people caring. God dreams that we reach out and hold one another's hands and play one another's games and laugh with one another's hearts. Not laugh at each other, but laugh with our hearts. But God doesn't force us to do that. He doesn't force us to love each other. And sometimes we don't. But when that happens and we get angry and hurt one another, we start to feel sad and very alone. And sometimes we cry, and God cries with us. But when we say we're sorry and forgive one another, we wipe away our tears and God's tears, too. I love this page. It does. Each of us carries a piece of God's heart within us. And when we love one another, the pieces of God's heart are made whole. It's kind of heart-shaped. Kind of cool. And I think that's really what it's all about. God dreams that every one of us will see that we are brothers and sisters. Even you and me, even when we have different mommies and daddies and live in different faraway lands and speak different languages and have different skin color and eye color, and some are tall and some are short, and some... Um, 
have bigger noses than others. But do you know that um, how to make God's dream come true? Do you know how to make God's dream come true? Yeah, we do. We all know it. It's sharing and loving and caring and holding and playing and laughing. And it's easy as knowing that we are all family because we're all God's children, no matter who we are, where we're from, what we look like, what our dreams are. So will you help God's dream come true? Let me tell you a secret. When God smiles like a rainbow, it's when you do. It doesn't matter what our dreams are, but God's dream for us is to be one, to reach out a hand, to give a hug, to give a smile, to give hope, no matter who, tall, short, thin, thick, smart, not as smart, it's all good, because God loves each one of us, and part of him is in each one of us. So let's make God's dream come true. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you that your dreams for us are even more grand than we could ever think. We know how much you love us, and we know how much you want us to love each other. So help us take down those things that divide us, things that we look at and say, oh, I can't like this person because they don't speak my language, or they don't look like me, or they don't have the same desires and dreams that I have. Lord, we know that you are part of each one of us. So help us stretch out our hands in love, in caring, in sharing, so that your love, your dream, can be made whole. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, who redeemed us, Thank you for the scripture today. Thank you for what you want to show us and what you want to accomplish in us by your spirit. We ask that you will do this in your name. Amen. I'm not going to ask you how many of you have ever gone to therapy, but I am going to ask if anybody has ever heard of a type of therapy called Family systems therapy. Okay. Family systems therapy. So you may or may not know that there are all different... Um, if, you, if you were going to go to a counselor, you're not necessarily going to get the same type of counseling from this counselor over here as you get from this counselor over here because there are all different types of... Um, there are all different styles and theories and understandings of how to help a human being with their emotional and mental health. Um, the reason I'm bringing up family systems therapy, partly, <laughs> is because although I am not a counselor, I, do, I, had, I did take a couple of counseling courses, and one of them talked about family systems therapy, and I used this idea in my Stepping Into the Story class that I teach at the pilgrimage, and I think it's related to what we're going to talk about here today. So the basic understanding of family systems is that if you are working with one person to try to help them um, maybe manage their life better or have a, a better perspective on their life, 
you're actually, in that one person, you're actually treating an entire family and that system. Because every individual is, they're themselves, but part of who they are has been made up by the family that they come from. Um, it's been influenced by that. And so when, in this idea, when one member of the family changes or when a new person is added into the family, the whole system changes. And so there's a couple of examples of this. For example, if you are in a family and a significant member of the family is an alcoholic, and then that person decides to get sober, and they do, they are changing, by that decision, they are changing the entire dynamic of the family. So even though it's a good change, it is really disruptive to the family. And the whole family is like, wait, what we, we already, most people aren't thinking about this, but subconsciously, everybody's like, we know, we don't like this, but we know how to deal with this. This person has this problem, and so in order to make sure they don't get really mad, I will do this over here. Well, now they're, they're acting different, and so now you don't know, wait, <laughs> I had this whole system worked out. Um, I had my role in this family. I'm the, I'm the appeaser, or I'm the one who avoids, or, or whatever, and now everything is topsy-turvy, and I don't know how I'm supposed to act here. So a lot of times, people will benefit from family systems therapy if, if this is happening, because the whole family system is influencing how this person is in their lives. Another example is, if somebody gets married, you add a whole extra person who has their entire family system into the family, right? So now you have, this is why sometimes, not always, but sometimes, in-law relationships are really challenging because you have this family system and this family system and suddenly they're merging but they don't do the same they don't do things the same way and so it changes things up and it makes it you have to work a little harder sometimes to communicate and make sure that uh, things are going well and sometimes it doesn't work so in Ephesians we're talking about the family we're a part of, right? We're talking about God's family. We've been talking about that already. Um, and in Paul's mind, he wouldn't articulate it this way because family systems theory didn't exist back then, but there are two family systems in play, especially in this chapter, um, and they're kind of in the back of his mind as he's writing to the Ephesians. He's about to describe a whole new family system that God is forming. He's talking to one group that's part of a family system that's joining another group, but he's saying God, is, God wants to make a whole new family, totally new, different system. Okay, so let's recap a little bit. Um, what are the things that we have learned from Paul so far about God and this family that he's bringing us into? Anyone? Anyone remember the big long sentence? <laughs> At the beginning of Ephesians. The whole 
first section of Ephesians 1 from verses 3 to 14 is a one sentence. And basically that one sentence that's super long says, God is awesome. <laughs> um, <clears throat> but sort of the subnotes to that sentence are, God, our Father, who made us, he's our Father because he made us, but more so, he's our Father because he adopted us into his family when we trusted Jesus. And Jesus is the one that God put over everything, in charge of everything. And the Holy Spirit became part of our lives when we trusted Jesus, and the Holy Spirit is the seal of our adoption. The Holy Spirit kind of signs off, you are, God, you are part of God's family, and God is here. And that Holy Spirit can give us all the power we need to take on the family resemblance, because, as we saw at the second half of Ephesians 1, the Holy Spirit has all the power of God, the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead and put him in charge of everything. That power of God is in here. So certainly, we can start to look more and more like Jesus, who looks like God. Okay, and then we talked last week in Barb's sermon, which, again, I remind you, go back and listen to it if you missed it. Um, that talks about what Jesus did in his death on the cross, reconciling us to God. So this is the backdrop for today, and now we're going to talk about these family systems that Paul is addressing. So he's writing a letter to a church in Ephesus, and some of the churches in the beginning of the church um, that we have letters to in the Bible were a mix of Jewish and Gentile Christians, but it sounds like mostly the people in Ephesus, the Christians in Ephesus, come from a Gentile background. And they, and so they're coming from what we could say is a Gentile family system. And their background is pagan idolatry. And we know this especially about Ephesus because there are some stories in Acts, um, especially Acts 19, where there is a, the main um, idol, the main false god that the people in Ephesus worshipped was Diana. She... Um, was their primary god in that city, and they, there was a big deal because the, some of the idol makers were losing business when all these people started becoming Christian. Suddenly people weren't buying these little idols of Diana anymore, and so the idol makers started a riot um, because, they, and they said, these Christians are blaspheming our goddess, but really the problem was they were losing money. Um, but anyway, so so idol worship was a big part of Ephesus, um, not just financially, but culturally. And um, back in the Roman Empire, all of these, the majority of the society, there weren't atheists. Everybody believed in some kind of god, but most of the society was pagan. And so they believed in lots and lots and lots of gods, and they made images of these gods. Um, <coughs> They thought that Christians and Jews, who only had one God and didn't make images of God, they, they actually called Christians and Jews atheists. So, what Paul says here in verse 
12 is you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of promise without hope and without God in the world. So Paul is saying something kind of shocking to these Gentile background believers. He's saying, you guys were the atheists because you didn't have any idea who the real God was. There's only one, and you didn't know him. So you were the atheists. On the other hand, the Jewish people's family system is sort of, or apparently, the one that these new Gentile Christians are joining. Sort of. They are the people to whom the Messiah came first. They are the people who received the law of God. Um, They had the Hebrew scriptures, so they had the whole Bible that there was at the time. Um, They were the chosen people, and they had a special sign to be God's chosen people, for the men at least, which was circumcision. And so um, they were, you could say, nearer to God than the Gentile background people were. Um, In verse 17, Paul says, He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. Those are the Jewish people. Paul's not really writing directly to the Jewish people because it doesn't sound like there were really that many Jewish background people in this church. Um, But he's talking about them because this is where Christ showed up among the Jewish people first. So it's relevant to these believers. But N.T. Wright points out something interesting. In verse 11, Paul calls the Jewish background people, he says, they call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands. So, get this, and it was, the circumcision was really important to the Jewish people, and we know, we studied Galatians a couple years ago, and we found out that that was a huge deal. There were Jewish maybe Christians who are saying, you can't become a Christian if you don't become a Jew first, and that includes male circumcision. Um, What Paul is saying here is, hey, you pagan background Gentiles who think that Jews and Christians are atheists, you are actually the atheist. But Jewish background Christians who think that the pagans were the idolaters, you're actually idolaters because just like they worship the things that they made with their hands, you're also worshiping something that you do with your own hands. Yeah. yeah. Paul, our English translations very often do not show us how earthy <laughs> the Apostle Paul was. So it's sort of this takes one to know one kind of thing going on here. But, he says in verse 13, Now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away, that's the Gentiles, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And then he talks about the barrier. What do we do about the hostility? This is the hostility we're talking about in, among the new people of God. Jewish background Christians and Gentile background Christians They're Christians, but they still have this giant baggage from their 
previous family systems. William Barclay says, the Jews had an immense contempt at this time period, had an immense contempt for the Gentile. The Gentiles, said the Jews, were created by God to be fuel for the fires of hell. God, they said, loves only Israel of all the nations he had made. Until Christ came, the Gentiles were an object of contempt to the Jews. The barrier between them was absolute. So I'm sure this was not the case for every single Jewish person, but by and large, this was the attitude that Jewish people had toward Gentiles at this time period. And I think it's important to note this because I think that this happens still in Christian churches today. And it's maybe not the Jewish-Gentile barrier, although there is still a barrier there. Um, but it can be, we are the people of God. We have something special. And so all those other people out there who don't think like us are fuel for the fires of hell. We don't, we would probably wouldn't say it that way, but I think that that a lot of times is in the back of people's minds and gets communicated sometimes by our communities, not this community necessarily, but by so-called Christian communities. John Stott talks about Herod's temple in Jerusalem at the time. This is before the temple was destroyed in A.D. 70, which we all know about. And apparently, this was news to me. I knew that the temple was designed so that there was the inner, you know, the Holy of Holies, and then there was the court for the, the priests, and then there was the court for the Jewish men, and, the, and then the women. The court of the Gentiles wasn't on the same level. It was a really big area, and there was a court of the Gentiles, but the temple was on a hill, and the court of the Gentiles was at the bottom of the hill. So not only did you have a wall separating you from the people of God, but you also had a whole mountain. So here's a question. How would you sum up what the gospel is? Okay. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. What's that? Okay, it is a drama. So Ron says the gospel mean gospel means good news. It does. It means good word. And the good news, according to the pastor that Ron is quoting, is that Jesus, you can correct me if I get this wrong, Jesus is the Son of God, and he died on the cross for our sins and rose from the dead. Okay. Any? Yes? No? What? Okay, first of all, that's individualistic. Also, why is it good news? What's good about it? Oh. Okay, so, so the gospel is a communication device? Okay. 
Between, okay, between a person and God. A golden ticket freely handed out to whoever will receive it. It's available to us. It's free. Okay. <laughs> yes, but kind of. Well, okay. Here is part of the gospel that Barb brought up last week when she was preaching on the first part of this chapter that we're looking at, which is Ephesians 2. We were dead because of our sin. This, that's bad news. Everybody has sinned, and everybody was dead. And in verses 4 through 7, Paul says, and we were dead, and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Jesus Christ. God made us alive through grace. We didn't do it. God made us alive. But the gospel is more than eternal life. If God did this so that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us through Jesus Christ, then it's not enough for it to just be about our individual eternal life. Because who the heck cares and is going to see it? How is God going to be glorified throughout the coming ages if all it is is my own eternal life? It's more than eternal life. It's also even more, certainly not less, but even more than simply being reconciled to God and seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. This part of Ephesians 2 that we're looking at is about the rift between human beings. The first part of Ephesians 2 was about the rift between us and God. But actually, it's one whole chapter, and it's one whole idea. All of Ephesians 2, not just the first half, is an explanation of what the good news really is. If you only have half of it, you don't have the good news. Sin separates. We say this here all the time. And the gospel is reconciliation and freedom. And so the first part of this chapter talks about reconciliation with God. But this part of the chapter talks about reconciliation with God's image bearers. Why in the world would God be trying to build a family if he didn't care if we were reconciled? We wouldn't need to still be here. Here's something that has happened, and there are probably historical moments that we could point to that would s explain why this has happened, but um, <coughs> well, we don't, it doesn't really matter. Somehow, in many, many Christian traditions, there has become this idea that the good news is we don't have to go to hell, and Everything about our human relationships, therefore, becomes about helping other people 
not have to go to hell. Which is fine, but it isn't enough. And when that is the only, when the gospel is that narrow, it turns into making some pretty nasty people who claim to be Christians. Because we just want to get people on the on the right in the right place and it's kind of all dependent on our ideas. And so this is sort of what was happening with the Jewish people in this time. They had the law, they had the prophets, they had the scripture of God, they knew all of these things, but they had this very, very narrow idea of how any of that applied to anybody else. And in our um, especially evangelistic traditions, we do a whole lot of talking about doctrine and a whole lot of talking about believing. And when we do good works for other people, often we do it so that we can tell them, so that we can preach at people. All of this is good news. We need to be reconciled to God. We need to be freed from our sins. Our sins need to be forgiven. But that doesn't feel like good news to a whole lot of people out there if we can't have better human interactions here and now where we look like God's family. The whole point of making us into God's family is so that there will be people who are reconciled not just to God, but to each other. Paul describes the very severe rift between the historically chosen people of God, the Israelites, the Jewish people, and the rest of the nations that they saw beneath them. That that was a big rift in the church at that time. There are some other rifts now since then. Um, What are some other things that divide our society or even our churches today? Go ahead and name them. Politics. Ethnicity. Sexuality. Wealth. Yep. Yeah, we got some big things. (laughs) Why are there more of them now? I think it's really important to think about the giant um, spiritual, emotional, psychological, and physical divide between the Jews and the Gentiles. And remember that, that picture of the temple and the levels. When we think about these kinds of rifts that we see, even in the church that belongs to Jesus, and then remember that Isaiah prophesied that every valley would be exalted and every mountain and hill made low. This is what God wants for his people. This is part of the good news. If people are not able to be united in Jesus Christ, just like we are united to God in Jesus Christ, then the whole thing falls apart. In verse 14, Paul says, Jesus himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. This is really hard for me. I haven't even figured out how to talk about this because I do believe 
that theology is important, I believe doctrine is important, I believe that it matters, uh, I believe that morals are important, I believe that God tells us things in the Bible that are true, that uh, affect how we live. And, um, and so I'm not saying we just say anything goes, I don't think that's what Paul is saying either, but I do think, he, and I, I'm not going to even try to resolve this today, but I do think he's saying something really striking here. The barrier between the Jews and the Gentiles in this particular situation really was the law. And Paul says, Jesus destroyed the barrier by setting, it, uh, setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. On the cross, Jesus, in his flesh, took the punishment for our sins. Partly, that punishment was to heal not just the rift between us and God, but the rift between us and each other. He fulfilled the law in his flesh, and his dying on the cross not only reunited us, reconciled us to God, but is supposed to reconcile us to people. Between the Jews and the Gentiles, the one who was more right was the Jews. Hands down, absolutely. But Jesus is so invested in reconciling all types of people to God and each other that he set aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. He set aside the Jews' grounds for rightness. So that... We don't only need grace to be reconciled to God, we need grace to be reconciled to each other. We can't do either thing without Jesus and God's grace. In, back in verse 8, it says, It is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. We are saved, which means reconciled to God and reconciled to each other through grace alone, through Jesus Christ, alone. Jesus is our peace because he, not us, he has destroyed the barrier, not just between us and God, which we see symbolized by the temple, the curtain in the temple that got ripped in two from the Holy of Holies, but also the barrier between us and them, the levels of the temple. It all comes back to the temple Kind of weird we talked about the temple at the beginning of the year. Um, the barrier between us and God was ripped apart, and the barrier between Jew and Gentile, or whatever else is a barrier, gets leveled out. And the reason he's doing this, in verses 15 to 18, Paul says, God's purpose in removing the barrier by setting the law aside, fulfilling it in his own body, his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. God wants to create a whole new family system. And yes, there is a family system that is kind of the basis still for this family, and that is the family system that God set up in the Old Testament, but 
God is building off of that, setting aside the law and commandments in his own body and creating one new family system. We participate in this work with God, but it is grace that starts it. Reconciliation is a mark of the gospel. Reconciliation is the gospel. It is so much the gospel, it is humanly impossible to have real reconciliation without Jesus Christ. So, you probably know what I think the answer to this question is. I want you to think about it for yourself, though. Is reconciliation between people really as important as reconciliation with God? <laughs> Sounds like it. Okay, I'm going to unpack that a little more. You really can't have one without the other. The Apostle John says this too. It's not just Paul here. Um, John says in 1 John 2.9, anyone who claims to be in the light, that is, in favor with God, but hates a brother or sister, is still in the darkness. That's pretty basic. Um, when we pray the Lord's Prayer, we say, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Jesus told us to pray that. Right now, we're talking about people within the family of God. There is no identifier that gives us a right to lord it over another believer, ever. This is what Galatians 3 that we read in the responsive reading is about. A lot of times, people will use that passage um, incorrectly. They will, it says, there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And so they say, it doesn't matter. And so race relations don't matter. We don't need to talk about that. And, and we don't need to advocate for women because there's neither male nor female. They're, like, that is not what that passage means. In context, in that passage, Paul is saying, all of those identifiers are part of who you are, but nothing... None of those identifiers give anybody the right to lord it over someone else if you are in Jesus Christ because he is your primary identifier. It doesn't matter what country you're from. It doesn't matter what race you belong to. It doesn't matter what gender you are. You do not get to abuse someone or be bossy to someone because of any other identifier because you are all one in Christ Jesus. People who, people are supposed to know that we are part of God's family because of our love for each other. Because we take after our Heavenly Father who loves us. Humans are created in God's image, and humans are created to reflect God to the world. And what we do to others, as Jesus tells us in his parable in Matthew 25, we do to Jesus. When humans sinned, the rift between us and God and the rift between us and other humans was instant. When Adam and Eve ate that fruit, immediately they realized they were naked, which the nakedness was not the sin, but they suddenly realized they were vulnerable before each other. There was something not right. And then the rift between, God between them and God happened. It was basically right at the same time. Paul tells us here that we are reconciled to God in the reconciled one body of Jesus Christ. So this is the message of this passage. If we are 
if we belong to Jesus, if we have put our faith and our trust in Jesus and his death on the cross, we are in his body and we have the Holy Spirit living in our bodies. And so therefore, we will begin to reconcile with other followers of Jesus. We have to. Otherwise, it really didn't happen, apparently. It's not like it happens immediately, but there has got to be work towards reconciliation and healing of relationships if we are part of God's family. We cannot overcome the sin between us and other humans by ourselves, but no matter what our starting point is, we can be reconciled to anyone who is in Jesus if we are in Jesus. He came and preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. And then listen to how beautiful the last part of this chapter is in light of the description of the literal temple and the literal barrier between Jew and Gentile. Paul is telling people, these Ephesians, these pagan background Christians, who had been overlooked and scorned by the people of God, and he's telling those people who had scorned them, he's saying, both of you were hopeless and helpless without Jesus. But with Jesus, you are all one. You are all one equal family. And this is how he describes it, verses 19 to 22. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Jesus Christ himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become the temple of the Lord. And in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. This is what God wants for his people, for his family. He wants to live here. He wants to live in us, us, as his one temple. He wants to live among his beloved sons and daughters. He's not trying to kick us out of the house. He wants us to move back in. None of us deserve to be here. None of us was right enough but Jesus is right enough for all of us. So as we close, I want to ask a question, and I don't want to ask this to add shame or guilt, but I do want to acknowledge that I know every single one of us has some areas in our lives where relationships are, are challenging. Um, and... So I want to um, invite you to think about where there is hostility in your life. Sometimes it is not your fault. That's just how it is. But you can probably still think of something where even if it isn't your fault, there is some hostility. Either on the large scale or on the small scale. I'm not going to ask you to figure out how to fix it or to go do some kind of unhealthy apology where you don't need to where you actually do not need to apologize but i am going to say take a minute and 
what can you say to Jesus in your heart right now about that hostility? We can't fix this ourselves, but he can. And we can cooperate with him as he does his work. He wants to do this work because it is in that way that people will know him and his broken body will be healed and we will all be empowered to live fully before the Father by the Spirit, reconciled with God and reconciled with each other. Lord Jesus, you know that it is so hard for us to live at peace with all people. And we also know that you are righteous and you are just and you are good and you don't want um, evil to inhabit in your household. At the same time, you do want to reconcile us. So we ask that you will help us to look more and more like you, more and more like the one who saved us that we will have your family resemblance, and that your family here in this building and beyond will become united in Jesus Christ alone so others will see and want to join the family too. In your name, amen.